1: Welcome to Movember Radio, I'm Osha Ginsberg and this is a weekly podcast focusing on men's health and the issues that men face today. Movember is a community of over 5 million men and women, mo bros and mo sisters from all around the world and each week we speak to someone from that community who is passionate about changing the face of men's health. For more episodes Movemberradio.com, find us in SoundCloud or search Movember on Facebook. This week's guest is Steve Robertson, Professor Steve Robertson. Steve is a professor of men, gender and health and co-director of the Centre for Men's Health. And he's also the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Men's Health, not the one with the black and white... Abs on the cover, the other one, the sciencey one. Steve's main research interests are on social theories of gender and masculinities and their application to aspects of health and illness. Basically, he researches why blokes go to the doctor and why they don't go to the doctor. It's a very interesting conversation. I'm grateful you can be a part of it. I'll talk to you on the other side. Welcome to the show, Steve.
2: Thank you very much, sir.
1: It's very good to have you here. Uh, So, firstly, I guess the first thing I should ask you, uh, Steve, or Professor Robertson, uh, can I call you Steve? I
2: prefer that, definitely.
1: Okay, Okay. Steve, how do you pick which bloke is going to get in his abs on the cover of uh, your your magazine every month?
2: (laughs) Yeah, good old Men's Health Magazine. Anyone who models themselves on me, that would work.
1: (laughs) Obviously a very different publication to Men's Health Magazine. You are the... uh, (laughs) You're the co-director of the Centre for Men's Health and the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Men's Health. So not so many um, blast your abs, massive arms, better sex every month with your journal, I'm sure.
2: No, that's right. I'll leave that for my personal life.
1: (laughs) How did you get involved in uh, the study of men's health?
2: Oh, that's quite a long story. So it was a It was a genuine mix of sort of professional and personal interest. So I'm a nurse originally by background and then I began to work in an area called health visiting which is mainly visiting mothers and children and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be so that raised a lot of questions about gender and health visitors are meant to be family visitors so I began to wonder what on earth were they doing then for the men in these families for the dads in the families. Uh, and the answer was very little. This was back in the mid 90s. And the other thing that happened around the same time was that my my wife started to do a degree in women's studies and politics. So issues of gender became something that sort of entered directly into our home. You know, discussions about who did what, who emptied the bins, who changed the kids' nappies, all this sort of stuff. So Yeah, those two things sort of came together at the same time. Um, A a new sort of unexpected thinking about gender in the workplace combined with similar stuff at home. So that was really where it all began.
1: You saw there was a lot of, I guess, questions to be answered in that area?
2: Yeah. So obviously, you know, we still have this issue of sort of men's reduced life expectancy and um, particularly for certain groups of men. So the question was raised then, why was that? And I wasn't happy with the very few sort of explanations that were around at that time. One of the main ones being that men, you know, this thing that really irritates me still, that men don't go to the doctors. (laughs) And it didn't resonate with my own experience. It didn't resonate with what I saw amongst my friends and family. So I figured that that wasn't actually a very good explanation, really. So, again, that sort of triggered this journey of uh, trying to find out what what is actually going on then.
1: The joke here is that blokes don't go to the doctor unless they're actually on
2: fire. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Is there any truth to that as far as you're concerned? So most of the evidence that's been collected now is that if men develop physical symptoms across a whole range of diseases, they will go to the doctor pretty much at the same time as women. There's a few exceptions, so um, you'll be particularly interested, coming from Australia, skin cancers slightly different, um, but that's one of the few conditions where it is different. So there's very little statistically significant difference in when men and women seek help for physical symptoms. There's a big difference in relation to sort of mental health and well-being. So, And I think that's a really important distinction to make. So I think there's a few things going on, really. One is that women tend to engage with health services more for preventative health care than men. And there is, like I say, there's this big difference in relation to um, mental health and wellbeing issues.
1: In your research, I guess the question would be, what have you found in the the role of, of men in modern Western society? And how that's changed in the last, I say, 20 years since you've been working and how that's affected men's health outcomes and expectations?
2: Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think there's a whole range of things going on at the moment, isn't there? For me, I think one of the biggest ones is, um, I'd say there's one big uh, sort of negative shift and one sort of positive outcome from that. So there's been a, a massive shift in a lot of sort of developed countries. In terms of the type of employment available to men from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds, and particularly the move away from manufacturing industry into service industry. And I think there's quite a lot of evidence that that shift has caused an awful lot of problems for men from those communities. So I can only speak really from the UK perspective, but you know, there used to be a lot of straightforward routes into employment for Men from a lot of deprived communities, for example, around the mining industry, the steelworks industry, these were common roots. So the young guys growing up in those communities, they pretty much knew from a very young age that there would be employment and what that type of employment would be. The shift towards service industries, I think, is very problematic because service industries rely a lot on good communication skills and a certain set of skills that men generally are still not socialised into developing. So there's a, a sort of a, an expectation that the jobs that are available now are either a sort of underemployment-type roles, so short-term contracts, stuff like this, that's not conducive to supporting a family, or jobs within a service industry that a lot of men may not be skilled and prepared for. So that's the negative. I think on the positive side, we've seen some shift in men's ability to openly care for um, children, families, each other. So for example, men now spend far more time caring for their own children than they ever used to. Um, In the UK there are as many male spousal carers, so caring for your partner, as there are women. So there's, there's some positive shifts along those lines.
1: What's fascinating to me there is you are drawing a direct link between the economy of a country and the shifting economy of
2: a country and the health expectations of that country. Absolutely. And again, you know, we've got quite, quite a lot of evidence. There's been studies done in, um, in Greece, across europe study that shows with the current financial austerity that's going on, it's impacted far more on men's mental health and suicide than it has on women's. So there are there are these direct links. They're just very difficult to see and quite difficult to research. But I'm glad that there are people that are far cleverer than me that are out there actually researching those links on that sort of scale because I think it is a really important issue.
1: So you've obviously been working at this for for a very long time, you've dedicated most of your career to it, what have you found works when it comes to not just guys and you know, let's just let's face it, there's probably, uh, if you're wealthy enough to own a phone to listen to this podcast on, you're probably not in the group of people we're talking about or you might be just you know, just above that. Have you found a way to you know connect to those those parts of society and and, and engage them in, in in these sorts of things, in, in helping them to take care of
2: themselves? Yeah, there's been successful projects over the years that have managed to do that, and I think there are some key features to those projects. So, thinking very carefully about the setting that you work in, so the principle is that you're far better off engaging men where they are um, and a couple of examples of that is has been some good projects that are workplace based good projects that are based in and around sport and sporting venues so that's one thing sort of reaching men where they're where they're actually at i think the other thing is the style and approach that you use and that varies depending on the group of men that you that you're engaging with obviously you know you your approach with a, an eighteen to twenty-year-old white British guy would be very different than, say, a seventy to eighty-year-old Afro-Caribbean man. So, but nonetheless, the principle is that you have to you have to be sensitive in terms of style and approach, and that includes language. Um, a good a good colleague of mine who runs a, uh, a suicide prevention charity called CALM, she talks about. You know, if you try and advertise a service by saying to men, are you feeling depressed? You won't really get that many because men don't identify in that way. But if you say, you know, you're feeling shit, then, okay, here we come. This is it. Yeah, that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling really crap, actually. Um, So, yeah, style, approach, language. And then I think something that's only just been sort of recognised and developed is the need to work and sort of co-work projects with the men themselves. So what I mean is, instead of saying, I've got this really lovely, shiny service that I'm going to come and deliver at you, you know, it's more about engaging with the guy, saying, what is it that you need? What is it that you want in this setting, in this community? What are your needs and wants? What solutions have you yourselves found within that community? And how can we sort of develop and spread those? So we've just been involved in a really interesting project in Manchester with um, fathers, and that's exactly the approach that they took. And that project is now pretty much self-sustaining. So the the company that developed that work, co-developed that work with the dads in that community, are on their way to sort of pulling out now and providing less and less support There's a group of fathers now who've formally constituted themselves as a council of dads and they've got all sorts of initiatives up and running. So it's partly about drawing on the assets of of the community itself. And then sort of the final point, I think, is linked to that, which is the importance of um, peer mentoring and I guess what you might call sort of role modelling. So within those projects, it's a case of identifying... Men that are able to go the next step, drawing them into either a voluntary role or even a paid role to work with other guys who are just literally just like them because they're from that community, their understanding is much better, therefore, trust is much more likely to be developed easily. So, yeah, those are I think those are some of the key principles.
1: And what about uh, guys who are listening that might be a bit concerned? About their mates and about their state of mind, what have you found is the most effective way to talk to your mates about this sort of stuff? Guys who might not want to be talking about it even
2: yeah it's um, it's a very difficult one finding that tipping point where you can sort of just be alongside your friends and your mates and then converting that into the opportunity to speak so I think the old the favorite old phrase is standing together shoulder to shoulder rather than face to face. So for me, that means taking the time and creating the opportunities just to be with those mates, creating sort of conversational opportunities that might allow them to share, but not pushing that too far. And I think this has been successful in a a range of settings. The Sheds are a very good example. You know, the Men's Sheds movement sort of creates this space where guys they don't have to talk face to face but because they're sort of doing stuff together shoulder to shoulder it creates an opportunity where they are more likely to be able to do that there is i mean this it it depends how worried you are so there's been some work we were involved in evaluating a little bit of work up in scotland um around suicide and that was quite open about the fact that you you can and perhaps should directly Ask that question, you know, are you feeling suicidal? And particularly ask it in a way that's not wrapping it up in, you know, you're not going to do anything silly, are you? They were saying that's not, that's like a workaround that almost closes down the conversation. They were saying, you know, sort of ask the question directly. And I think, again, projects over many years that I've been involved with have shown that men do tend to quite like a direct approach, and often a, solu- a solution-focused approach.
1: That, that, I guess that was my next thing. If you, open that, if you open that door and your mate wants to walk through it, you better have a follow-up, right?
2: Yeah, so that's the other thing. Again, a lot of successful, successful suicide prevention work that's based on a sort of peer-to-peer model, part of a, lo- a big part of the training is about, so, you know, as you say, if you get these guys to open up, what is there then? So, yes, it's quite, it's quite important to know where you might direct those mates to. And that's, that's work that you can do. You know, if you're worried about a mate, just do a little bit of that work. Search on the net or, you know, linking with people who might have answers to that. In the UK, we have a big national um, suicide line called Samaritans. You can give them a call and say, this is the situation. Can you give me any advice? So it's pretty, it is worth doing that sort of groundwork so that if the guy if you make does open up you've got a, you've got some potential options
1: have you noticed a difference in your work between guys who live in kind of more densely populated city areas to perhaps cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com Uh, blokes that live in you know towns with populations less than a thousand, and how is there a difference between the way those guys approach their health?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I've I've been involved in a few papers around sort of rural men's health, and particularly sort of rural men's mental health. And I think it's one of these things where what I would say is that the issues are probably qualitatively different rather than quantitatively different. Um, I mean, for example, some of the issues in small rural locations might be whether you've got access to the required services and you've got to a stage where you recognise that you need them. Other issues, particularly around mental health, is that everyone knows everyone in those tiny places and there's still, unfortunately, a lot of stigma attached to mental health, whereas, you know, in densely populated areas, you can often sort of hide those sort of things a bit more easily, perhaps until you're at a stage where you're ready to be open with other people about them. Yes, yeah, so there are, I think there are some sort of differences along those lines.
1: So what do you think is... As someone who's worked in this uh, for a long time, what do you think are the the, the key um, the key ways to help destigmatize the conversations around mental health?
2: I think it's a real challenge. What we found in a few projects is that you have to sort of engage men without using that mental health language. So, like, say, you know, don't talk about feeling depressed, talk about feeling crap. Or So you, I think you need to do that in the first instance, which you could say is actually feeding into that stigmatising. But then if, what you find is once men become engaged, then you can begin to get them to see the the importance of opening up sharing their experiences and i think definitely sharing experiences is a very good way to destigmatise. you know there's been a lot of campaigns in australia uk states canada that have engaged celebrities who've had mental health concerns to get them to share their story, I think that's got some value. So, but it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. In the UK, there's quite a big push at the moment to get what they call parity between mental health and physical care services. And what they mean is parity in terms of resource allocation. But I think what would happen if, if they managed to get that parity is that that in itself may help destigmatise. So whilst mental health remains a sort of a Cinderella service, then That doesn't help with the stigma either.
1: There's uh, obviously going to be guys listening who, you know, are going to, on their way, thinking about perhaps becoming a dad, uh, inevitably going to become a dad or have just become a dad. What effects does this have uh, on your mental health, on your overall health, and what things should
2: blokes look out for? (laughs) God, that's a a multifaceted question. It, It all depends on your circumstances. You know, have you become a dad happily? Was it planned did you not want it? Did you not want it, but you're still really happy about it? So there's a whole whole range of different things that that would throw up, depending on your circumstances. And again, poverty comes into that. You know, if, you, if you'd find yourself in, in difficult social economic circumstances, that may not be quite as attractive, the thought of becoming a die. You might be more anxious and worried. In very practical terms, one of the things that I've said so many times over the years, both in my role as a health visitor when i was dealing with this a lot and also to um colleagues and friends one of the best things that you can do is to become as engaged as you can in the antenatal period and definitely in the postnatal period. Everyone talks about maternal bonding, and actually we should be talking about paternal bonding. You know, fathers need to bond with their babies in exactly the same way. And that means becoming very physically involved at the earliest possible opportunity. You know, you might be anxious about holding the baby, but make yourself do it. Get used to holding the baby, changing the baby, get that physical contact, is what creates and helps develop that mental and emotional connection. So I think that's that's a massive thing. Um sharing experiences with other dads if you know people who are dads it's a good thing you know chatting to them I mean for me it was I would say it was probably the best thing that I ever did so I've got a I inherited one daughter when I got married she was already three um, and then had another daughter a year later and both of those experiences are just fantastic
1: so let me ask you about that because I've recently inherited a kid as well however she was 10 when i came along so Mm -hmm. there's been a few challenges there to be honest steve
2: yeah i think i was very lucky in that um my eldest daughter's natural father wasn't on the scene so there was no complications with a a sort of a you know a three-way issue around sort of how you deal with um, different problems as children grow up and stuff and then like you say if it happens when the Children are older, it's finding weight Do they accept you? Do they not? You know, how far do you become involved in sort of discipline, for want of a better word? Or how do you deal with uh, problematic behaviours that they might show, especially as they enter the teenage years? Um, those are all very difficult things. One of the things I would say, whether you're getting together as a young couple without children or getting together as a couple where there are already children involved, is try and have conversations about your your values, attitudes and beliefs towards parenting with your partner or potential partner. Because there's been some research done that shows the closer your values are, the more likely your relationship is to survive and the better the relationship will be with the children. So I think a lot of parental difficulties come, and obviously I saw this a lot with my previous work, when there's a a strong um, disconnect between the two Parenting styles. Um,
1: okay, so I'm going to ask a question that I've been sitting on and wondering if I'm going to ask you, but considering how close you've been to the subject for how long you've been to the subject, I think it's appropriate. What thoughts do you have on men uh, and, uh, I guess, for one of a better word, men and violence?
2: Yeah, it's one of the, uh, it's all a hot topic for years and years, hasn't it?
1: So I'm talking to you from Sydney today and there's massive government intervention, they're closing pubs, they won't serve certain drinks after a certain time of night, no plastic, only plastic, no glass. It's full on, it is full on and I just wondered, how did we, how did we get to this point? How did we get
0: here?
2: Yeah, it's, it's very difficult because, you know, men undoubtedly are the main perpetrators of violence. They are also the main victims of violence. Um, Obviously, most of that is male-on-male violence. But I think we are seeing an increase in female-on-male violence within relationships. Certainly, I mean, in the UK, there's now one male death every two weeks from domestic violence. Um, That said, there are still two female deaths every week. So there's there's still a big difference. I think part of me can't help but think that some of this relates back to what I was talking about about the wider economic structure and environment if you have a group of men that are feeling um, disenfranchised, which is a posh term, but if they think that they've got no or little hope of a positive future, you know they're just going to be employed in crap jobs, the jobs might be unstable they may or may not be employed um, that week or that month that's not a good place for anyone to be really so i think those things create problems in feeling safe feeling secure knowing who you are and i mean you mentioned drink in the question that you just asked drink plays a massive part in in all sorts of forms of violence so i think maybe some of those measures are not that stupid really i think they're probably they're possibly quite sensible but it's a sad state of affairs that it has come to that.
1: On the topic of, of alcohol, I'm sure you've seen you've seen a lot of good and a lot of bad. When it relates to your health and the health of, I guess, your
2: family and those around you, what are your, what are your thoughts there on alcohol? Again, it's a tricky one because I've, I've always been a fan of what we in the UK still call pubs as male sort of places and spaces. An awful lot of our traditional pubs are, I think, very sadly closing down So we now have a lot of pubs that have been turned into more eating establishments that just have a small bar, and it's a very different client group. I think that there's definitely a place for those sort of spaces where men, and especially uh, it tends to be older men, when I say older I don't mean old, sort of post-40, go and have a very safe space to be. They make social connections with other guys in those places. They don't have to sort of worry much about what they say and think and the amount of alcohol consumed in those settings doesn't tend to be that high the amount of violence in those settings is very low but they would be seen I suppose as perhaps uncomfortable places and spaces certainly certainly for women and then my mind sort of oscillates between thinking you know men should have those sort of places and on the other hand i wouldn't want to create them as male-only spaces and they're not male-only spaces so i think it's tricky definitely tricky
1: I went to um, uh, the kid graduated primary school yesterday and... Uh, oh,
2: congratulations.
1: Mate, it was pretty fun, but I watched all these little 11-year-old guys just... You know, the difference... When I was 11, I couldn't tell why the girls looked at all of us boys like, oh, you're so stupid. But when they were all stood on stage, I was like, the developmental difference between the 11-year-old girls and the 11-year-old boys was just... It was a chasm, all right? What would you say? How, what would you even say to these, these little guys who are about to go into high school. What would, what would you say to, a, to, a, to an 11-year-old kid today?
2: Great. Have have fun. Enjoy your life. You know, do do all the things that you want to do, but do it all with sort of kindness and generosity. That's succinct. I like it. Uh,
1: you mentioned about uh, the importance of conversation uh, between men, uh, the importance of taking action, making a phone call. Um in your work, what have you found the role of, of, of physical activity and the effect that that has on uh, men's health and men's uh, health expectations?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we know a lot about physical activity as a, a very positive thing for both physical and mental health. Um, it's you know it's associated with reduced um, cancers, reduced diabetes, reduced heart disease. So, but it's also. Some, very strongly associated with improvements in mental well-being as well so there's there's a massive role for um increasing the amount of physical activity that we do and this is something that i needed to tell keep reminding myself because i tend to you know doing the sort of job that I do, it's very sedentary so, physician heal thyself, I think (laughs) but again, there's there's also um, you know, again, there's links with socioeconomic status, so we know that men from lower socioeconomic groups engage in less physical activity than other guys, so there's there's issues there, but I think it's it's just such an amazing, it makes an amazing difference to how you feel, there's a, a colleague of mine once described engagement in physical activity as a sort of vibrant physicality and i think it is you know when you come off like a a soccer pitch or a you know a rugby pitch or whatever you're just buzzing you know you feel absolutely physically knackered but absolutely elated as well it's a it is a great feeling and it's been shown you know the physical changes have been shown to generate that sort of elation but it also stays with you and you feel better about yourself but it does it doesn't
1: have to be people think ah. I need to be more physically active, and they think it means I've got to get a gym membership. I've got to go lift things at CrossFit oh, no. and make noises. I've got to play tennis. It could just be a walk around the block.
2: Yep, absolutely. That I mean, you know, the the research evidence around physical activity and the types is is almost as controversial as the issue of men's violence. I work I work quite closely with some of the people in the sports place at our where I work, and ah. Uh, oh, God, they have very heated debates about the type of physical activity, how much, how often. And it's like, you know, the message is do some physical activity. There's actually a strong relationship between being sedentary and a lot of health problems, irrespective of other aspects of your life. So definitely being sedentary is a problem. So, yeah, any form of physical activity. In the UK, we've started doing some great stuff with um, what they call walking football. A lot, I guess a lot of people know soccer. Wow! So these are guys that are often sixty plus, but they're not allowed to run. So they play they play soccer still, but they they can only walk. They'd get, uh, you know, they'd get like a yellow card and stuff if they run. So this format, and I think it's a fantastic idea. I'm thinking of joining myself because I don't know that I could run much these days. But um, so stuff like that, there's all sorts of different ways of doing physical activity on your own with other people. But again, I think there's some evidence to show that doing it alongside other people is actually provides additional benefit. So and this is why I'm not overly keen on gym membership. You know, it's elite because it costs so much. It's not necessarily helping you make social connections. I mean, I I don't mind if people do it, but I think if you're going to do something, I'll try and do something that's linked with other people because it also provides additional motivation. You're more likely to keep engaging in it because you've got at least one or two other people, sort of motivating you to do that. So,
1: um, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, there's three questions we end every interview with, uh, so let me hit you with the first one. When it
2: comes to November, what kind of mo do you grow? A, a dodgy 1970s mustache. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I spend November looking like a porn star. It's not good.
1: What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Uh what for you what for you is the most important quality in your
2: mates? Ah oh, that's a good question. I think um an ideal mix of empathy and honesty.
1: And if you could uh
2: pick up your phone and call uh 18-year-old Steve, what would you tell him? <laughs> Pretty much what I would tell those 11-year-old guys you were talking about. So, you know, just Steve repeat everything that you've done in your life but do it all with a bit more generosity of spirit mate have a fantastic day thank you so much for joining us on the show today buddy you too it's been
1: a blast all right have a good one cheers on you mate that was professor steve robertson or as you and i can call him steve Thank you so much for listening to the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of Movember Radio. To catch up on older episodes, movemberradio.com or just subscribe in the podcasting app of your choice. This episode of Movember Radio was produced by myself, Lavanya Nagendran, Molly Hindman. Audio production on this episode by Daryl Misson and music, of course, by the fantastic Toe Hider. Take care of yourself. Talk to you next week.